seems like everyone's coming back, um, you know, from PNG. Wow. We came back from Canada uh, about three weeks ago uh, and North America, having spent uh, almost five months there. And um, yeah, it's uh, lovely uh, just to uh, be among you again this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 2. Um, and so I just invite you to um, open your Bibles to that passage, uh, John chapter 2. And we're going to be looking there at um, the last verses of that psalm. We'll do the scripture reading afterwards. So just get on to my, we just move to uh, the PowerPoint. I want to just introduce this passage to us. One of the things that um, I love about going back to Canada is catching up with our grandchildren. Uh, because uh, children fascinate me for many different reasons. And one of the reasons is, is that uh, children can say the most funniest things. Uh, like little Johnny. Um, little Johnny, he found the old family Bible and uh, he was paging through the Bible. And suddenly as he was, uh, you know, paging through, something fell out. It was a, a leaf that someone had, actually a leaf from a tree that someone had put inside the Bible to press it and it flat. And um, when he saw that, he said, Mama, look what I found. And uh, Mommy said, oh, well, what did you find, dear? And uh, with astonishment, the little boy said, I, I think I found Adam's suit. <laughs> you know, a doctor tells this story about her then four-year-old daughter. Um, on the way to preschool, the doctor had uh, left his stethoscope on the car seat uh, in, the, in the rear of the car. Um, and um, his little girl picked up the stethoscope and began playing with it. And as he saw that in the rearview mirror, he said, be still, my heart. Um, you know, my, my daughter wants to walk in my footsteps. And as he was having that warm and fuzzy thought, he heard his little daughter speak into the stethoscope and said, welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order? Uh, it's interesting, this little girl that I have on this picture, it's actually um, the daughter of my niece, my niece um, and um, it's interesting, um, her dad's a nurse, and guess what she's doing today? She's actually working in the very same hospital many years after that picture was taken um, as a nurse as well, so she did walk in her father's footsteps. Well, some time ago, I was visiting a family in the congregation that I was serving, and they had a, a number of young children. And as I bent to talk to one of the little, uh, to the children, one of them uh, looked up at me and he said to me, I know where you live. <laughs> and I said, you do? I said, you know where I live? He said, yeah. He said, you live where God lives. So this little boy had it all figured out, you know, since he always would see me at church. He figured that that's where I lived. For him, God's address was the church's address, right there in that building, in this building, where this young fellow, this is where God lives. I suppose that someone was wandering along the streets as they do around here in Wishart, and they happened to enter into this building this morning. Would that somebody find God here? Is this where God lives? Well, in our text this morning that we're going to look at from John chapter 2, Jesus is wandering around in Jerusalem, and he ends up um, at the temple. It's the time of the Jewish Passover, and Jesus went there. While he was in Jerusalem, he went to the temple. 
Now, if there was any place that you would expect to find God, it was there. Because for the people of Israel, the temple was God's house. If you wanted to find God, you would go to the temple. When Jesus went to the temple, did he find God there? Let me just read what Jesus found when he went to the temple. And we're going to begin reading at verse 12 in John chapter 2. It says there, After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, and sheeps and dove, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will rise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the word that John put into print, that we could read and that we could apply in our own lives. And we pray, Lord, this morning as we gather around that word that um, the meditations of my heart and the reflections that we have on this passage together will truly be pleasing in your sight. And when everything is said and done, that you, Lord Jesus, the Lord over this church and the Lord over all things, that you would be blessed and pleased, and that every single person that is here this morning would be helped. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, before we look at this story, uh, I need to explain something. All four of the Gospels, um, they tell us about the cleansing of the temple. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, The temple cleansing is at the end of Jesus' ministry. But here in John's gospel, the temple cleansing is at the beginning. So you would begin to wonder, did Jesus cleanse the temple in the beginning of his ministry, or did he cleanse it at the end of his ministry? Now here's the explanation. There's only one cleansing that Jesus did that happened on Palm Sunday at the end of Jesus' ministry. But the interesting thing about John's gospel, and as I walk through the book of Revelation with you, you know very much that John always organizes his material not chronologically, 
but he organizes all of his material that he presents to us theologically. And this is what John does also here in this passage. In John chapters 2 through 4, John is talking about the Jewish institutions. And the temple was high on the list of all the institutions that they had that was radically changed now that Jesus had come into this world. So John speaks about things like ritual purification, about the temple, about the rabbis, and about Jacob's well. But here in this passage, he addresses the institution of the temple. Now John tells us that Jesus cleansed the temple just before Passover. And the early believers who read the story, they knew that. They remembered. In John's gospel, there was two references to the Passover. Later on in John 11 at the end of his ministry. Now both chapters, they refer to the Passover using exactly the same words. In fact, for John, the entire life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was to be viewed in the context of Passover, of the Passion Week, the hour of Jesus' death on the cross. And all of this is telling us that this story that we have in John chapter 2 is not just an interesting story that happened one day in the life of Jesus. In fact, John is making a very important point about the use of the temple, the institution of God's house. So you would expect that if you went to God's house that you would find God there. But that's not what Jesus found. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And notice what Jesus does. He tells us, John tells us that Jesus made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace. Now we have to be careful when we read these words that we don't make too much of the violence of the scene. I mean, you might picture, for example, that Jesus is waving a, a terrible black whip. His eyes are glaring, tables are flying, people are running, animals are yelping. But that's not really the picture here. I mean, first of all, we know that Weapons were not allowed in the temple. The temple police would have been there and made sure that no one would bring, um, you know, weapons into the temple. They were there to establish public order. What Jesus probably did is he saw some of the straw from the animals. He improvised that straw used for animal bedding. He tied it together with some cords and made this improvised whip, this improvised tool to sweep the temple clean. I mean, if Jesus had used a, a weapon like a whip, he would have been arrested. But with this makeshift whip, Jesus swept the temple clean. Yes, furniture was broken, animals went running, coins flew from their scales. Jesus causes a public disturbance, but it was not the power of the whip that made his message succeed. It was the moral power of what Jesus actually said. I mean, the people did not argue with Jesus about what he had done. 
Instead, they simply asked him, you know, you know, what is the authority that you have to do all of these things? See, the people knew that Jesus was right. The temple in that day was no longer a place where you could find God. Jesus was angry because the people of his day were misusing and abusing the sanctity of his father's house. The temple had been turned into a house of trade. And that's not what God had intended the temple to be used for. Oh, sure, people had to bring their animals for sacrifices, but what had happened in that day is that the people of that day, they had started making the temple a place of trade so that when people would come to make their sacrifices, there they would be selling the animals, making their profit, exchanging money, and doing all of this in order to earn some cash. But that's not what God had intended his house to be used for. It was to be a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place of instruction, and a place of pious sacrifice. Yes, the temple had become corrupt, and it was no wonder. Because the spiritual leaders of that day, the high priest and his family themselves were corrupt. These priests had a very close connection with the Roman authority and the Roman government and were suspected of taking bribes or practicing all other kinds of corruption. They gave in to the political pressure of the day and neglected the spiritual well-being of the people and the nation of Israel. So Jesus' cleansing of the temple was a word of judgment against the spiritual leaders of his day. It's no wonder that the chief priests were now wanting to kill Jesus. When we look at these verses, these verses force us to seriously look at the life of our own religious house. See, our text is not just one story among a bunch of stories that we read about the life of Jesus and his struggles with Jewish leaders. There's a timeless message for us today. Imagine what would happen if Jesus were to walk through the doors of this building, if he came here to pay a visit. Would he find some cord around here and maybe make a makeshift whipped? Or would he praise God for what he sees in this place, what's happening here? Well, it would all depend on what he would find. Do you know what Jesus would expect to find if he came to this place? He'd expect to find God here. The disciples knew that. When they saw Jesus cleanse the temple and chasing all of these animals out and upscaling all of the money changers' tables, when they saw Jesus do that, they remembered the words of Psalm 69.9 where it says, zeal for your house will consume me. When Jesus saw his father's house turned into a house of trade, when he saw the sanctity of the temple perverted by corrupt leaders, Jesus became outraged. And he did the most outrageous thing. He caused a public disturbance, and he swept the temple clean. See, Jesus was consumed with a zeal for the temple. And my friends, that's the mark of every true believer. But it might be surprise you what that might mean for us today. What does it mean for you and I to be consumed with a zeal for the temple? Well, in verses 18 through 22, John goes on to explain that Jesus is the true temple. 
When the authorities asked for a sign that Jesus would give, that he had authority, Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise this temple up again. Now, the Jews thought that he was referring to the temple of that day. I mean, Herod's temple that was built, it took 46 years to build. And they said, oh, come on, Jesus. I mean, you can rebuild this in three days. I mean, it took us 46 years to build this building. But John goes on to explain that what Jesus was really referring to was his body. The sign that would be revealed that he was, the sign that would reveal that he actually was the true temple was actually the resurrection. Destroy it, and in three days it will be raised up again, pointing to his resurrection. Jesus would be destroyed, his body would be destroyed, but on the third day he would rise again. Do you understand what it means now to be consumed with the zeal for the temple? To be consumed with the zeal for the temple means for you and I today to be consumed with the zeal for Jesus. Jesus is the temple of God. I mean, that's what John tells us in Revelation 21, 22. And he already told us in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and has tabernacled among us, has tented among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the glory of God that once filled the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle that the people of Israel carried, you know, throughout their wilderness journey? The glory of God that filled the temple when the temple of Solomon was built. Well, Jesus now tabernacled among us. He tented among us. He, he templed among us. He was the temple of God. And the glory that once filled the temple and the tabernacle now filled Jesus. God's presence was embodied in the word made flesh in his son, our Savior Jesus. What that simply means for you and me today is that you will find God here when this place is consumed with a zeal for Jesus. And that ought not surprise us because isn't it true the Christian life is all about Jesus. Everything that we are and everything that we have and everything that we do, it's all about Jesus. But let's be honest for a moment. The church is a fallen institution. It's filled with sinners. It's filled with people like me and you. People who aim for goodness. But sometimes we just settle with programs and agendas that have little to do with Jesus and his kingdom. And we have to be honest. John tells us in verse 23 that many people started to believe in Jesus but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Why? Because Jesus knows everybody. He knows what's in the heart of you. He knows what's in my heart. He knows what's in the heart of this church. And because Jesus knows that, you and I need to honestly look at our own heart and the heart of our, our families and the heart of our community and, and the heart of this church. He knows what's going on. And we need to be honest. And if we're honest, we'll admit that many things are about us and not about Jesus. It's about us, our agendas, our programs, our likes, our dislikes. 
And when that happens, when people come here, they don't find Jesus. They find broken human beings like you and me. And that's all they find. They find people consumed with themselves. And when that happens, Jesus becomes outraged. This message ought to grab us. You and I can be consumed with so many things in life. And this message ought to force the question for each one of us to ask of ourselves. Am I consumed with a zeal for Jesus? Psalm 69.9. Are you consumed with a zeal for Jesus? Is this church consumed with a zeal for Jesus? I mean, you can always tell when individuals or a church are consumed with a zeal for Jesus because everything they are and everything they do is designed to strengthen their relationship with Christ and to set us loose in the world to change it. I mean, I've served a church for, you know, over four decades, and, and I'm so thankful whenever I go to a church and I see that there's Sunday school teachers, you know, who are consumed with a zeal for Jesus Sunday school teachers who love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. And they make it their priority, you know, throughout the week to prepare lessons. So when they come to church, that, you know, the children that they spend time with actually hear about Christ. They make it their priority to help young boys and young girls learn about the Bible and grow in their personal relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when people come to church, they find God there. And you say, well, we might not have a whole lot of children here, but you know, when I think about you as a congregation, we've got some young children that are being birthed and growing up in this church. We have some young adults who are attending this church. We have other people who are just wandering into this building and, and starting to make this their place where they are inquiring about God. And when you and I take the time to disciple these people, and to point them to Jesus, and to read scriptures with them, and to pray with them, and to show them not only through what we say, but what we do, that God is real. When they walk into this building, they'll find God here. You know, I also thank God for people who have a vision of doing something about the plight of the poor in this world. When they're not satisfied with people living in poverty or suffering from economic or political injustice, they're not just overlooking all those things. I mean, I thank God for boys and girls and men and women who are willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. And like Jesus, they do outrageous things. Oh, they might not flip some tables and chase out some animals. But they do equally outrageous things. They adopt the fatherless into their families. They go on long walks in their neighborhood, not just for exercise, but so that they could pray for their neighbors. They volunteer, volunteer their time and their talents and their treasures at a state school so that they would be able to provide RE classes for the kids who never hear about Jesus. These people commit long hours and deep wallets for the sake of Christian education to make sure that the youth and the young adults of our day today are raised up finding and knowing about God. And when people meet these kinds of people, 
they find themselves in the presence of God. For these people are consumed with a zeal for Jesus and his kingdom. My friends, I, and perhaps you realize that already, but today Jesus has already visited us. You've met him in his word. Remember John tells us, John 1 verse 14, that Jesus is the word, became flesh, and every time we open up the word of God, we meet Jesus. He's visited us today in his word. He's here. And what has he found in your heart and in the heart of this congregation? How will you respond to his visit? May you and I, and here's the challenge, become like Jesus, a living sanctuary, a temple of God's presence in this world. For when that is true, when people walk in these doors, they will find God at the corner of Wishart and Ham. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for um, this group of people that you have gathered together on this corner here in the south side of Brisbane. Thank you, Lord, for the many opportunities that we have to be light and salt in this world, to allow other people to come and to find God. And I pray, Lord, that this place will be a place when people walk through these doors that they will find God here. But may that also be true of each one of us, of our homes, so that when people walk through the doors of our homes, they find God there. And when they meet us at a coffee shop or across the lunch table at school or at the office, they define themselves in the presence of God. And through that, Lord, we pray that we may be the temple of God among us. May we truly tabernacle into our neighborhoods and into our communities and into our sphere of relationships to be the kind of people that when people meet us, they find God there. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we bring this service to a close. And the people of Israel were making their journey um, from the place of slavery to the place of freedom, from Egypt to Palestine. They wondered, you know, how should they be greeted as they go out into this world to do the mission that God has called them to do? And this is what God said to them. This is how you shall bless them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up the light of his presence upon you. And not just today, but always, may he keep you in his perfect peace. And together we affirm that by saying, Amen. Amen.